0: I think it's that time, I was, uh, I was looking at the schedule, we've already finished half of our semester, so we only meet 12 times, we've already met 6, so we meet uh, tonight and then the next two weeks, and then we're going to have a week off for Thanksgiving, so what is that, the 23rd I think, if I've got the schedule right, 23rd we don't meet. And then we'll come back for three more, right? Yeah. We'll come back for three more. And then uh, we'll be done for the semester. And then you have the option of, of signing up second semester. We'll look at the second half of the book of Matthew. So it's, it's going by quickly. Let's, uh, let's open a word of prayer and uh, we'll dive in. Father, I'm thankful for your son. I'm thankful for what He has done for us individually and what He someday will do for this whole world. Uh, while we wait for Him to return and make this world right, I pray that You continue to give us grace. Uh, just uh, asking tonight that as we uh, take some time to look at Your Word, uh, that You'd help us to think clearly about it and that You would use it through Your Spirit uh, to make us more like Christ. And we ask for it in His name. Amen. Alright, was everybody able to get the new handout? So we're going to start at the bottom of page 27, which was last week's handout. And then we're going to continue on into the new handout, so you want to make sure you have it. When we left off last time, we were looking at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that we did that I promised we'd come back to was look at what's normally called the Beatitudes. So these blessed statements. So at the bottom of page 27, when we start looking at the content of the sermon, verses 3 through 12, these Beatitudes, these demonstrate or these show the characteristics of people who are blessed. Or you could translate them, these are the blessed ones, the blessed group. They're the ones who are the privileged recipient of divine favor. So if you were to look up the the underlying Greek word in the main dictionary that we use for Greek words, this is the definition that they would give, a privileged recipient of divine favor. And there's a couple different Old Testament passages that have been pointed to. I say there Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 33 as the background for Jesus' statements. We'll see here in just a second, there's actually many different places in the Old Testament that use this kind of blessed one's language. But one passage that I think comes to most people's mind, many people's mind, and it's probably helpful, is those passages where um, Moses is giving the law for the second time on the plains of Moab. And there's curses that are pronounced from one mountain and blessings from another mountain. And the people have to choose which direction they're going to go. I think that's helpful, and we're going to see here in a second that there is also a corresponding woes section in Matthew. So in chapter 5, it's the, you are the blessed ones. In chapter 23, to the Pharisees, it's, woe, you are the cursed ones. Uh, But in any case, whichever passage from the Old Testament we're supposed to think of first, I say there in the middle of the paragraph, something I said last week, it's really, really important, I think, to note that Jesus is not saying that we're blessed because we've done certain things. So a little bit of a typo there, I should say, because we have done certain things. And he's not saying that we become blessed by doing certain things. That would be a very different message, right? Do X, Y, and Z, and then I'll bless you. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is you already have been the blessed ones, okay? He's saying that people who demonstrate these characteristics are evidencing that they are blessed. And Jesus is congratulating them or encouraging them. You know, he's giving them a, a that-a-boy. You know, I'm very happy for you. Uh, because even though it doesn't appear that you are the blessed ones, you really are. We can see other places where... This type of language is used, but just so we're really clear on what's going on, if you're the person in the middle, okay, a blessing is something that comes to you from someone higher, usually from God or from God through a priest, right? God blesses you or God uses a priest to bless you. That's like from the the top down to you, so to speak. But we're talking about what happens from the other end. People looking now at you, like horizontally or from below, your your fellow people, and they're saying you are one of the blessed ones. That's the difference. Jesus isn't pronouncing a blessing. He's not even saying this is how you can be blessed. He's looking at people who have received God's divine favor and saying, congratulations, you are the blessed ones. And the reason why you're blessed is because this is what God is going to do for you in the future. So these would be some examples of this. So from Deuteronomy 33:29, 29, so this is one of the passages that some, some people would point to that could be in Jesus' mind. Uh, this is what Moses says there. He says, blessed are you, Israel. So congratulations, you are the blessed people, Israel, the people of God. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper, and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you, and you will tread on their heights. Or maybe a more familiar passage. This is when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Remember, Elizabeth's child leaps in her womb when he hears the voice of the one that's going to be that um, he's going to be doing the forerunning for. And Elizabeth says to Mary, "Blessed is she." Who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her? So Elizabeth isn't pronouncing a blessing on Mary. Elizabeth is is with a very happy, excited, almost, almost a congratulatory tone, saying to her cousin, You are one of the blessed ones. Or in John 20, 29, when Jesus is talking to the disciples, he says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Remember, this is after the resurrection. But he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So that, that would be talking about us, hopefully, tonight, right? We've never seen the risen Christ, but, but we believe he rose. We believe he lives, right, at the right hand of the Father. And that is evidence that we're part of this, this blessed group, the, the, the recipients of divine favor. So turning the page there, I say at the top of page 28, If you want to get the whole picture of what these blessed people are like, just in the book of Matthew, you could go through the book of Matthew and look for other places that he uses the same type of language. So in chapter 11, verse 6, Jesus will say, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So if you don't trip over Jesus... If you, do, if you see Jesus as actually somebody you want to build your life upon, someone who's precious to you, someone that you're going to hold on to no matter what, well, that's evidence you're part of the blessed group. Or what he says to Peter. Remember when Peter gives the good confession, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He says, blessed are your... Oh, I'm sorry, this is, I'm skipping ahead. That's, that's the next one. But this one, he's talking to the disciples in general And he says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And then to Peter in chapter 16, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my my Father in heaven." And then finally, in chapter 24, verse 46, um, some of our translations kind of obscure the fact that he uses the same blessed language, but it should say, Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. So remember, this is the parable of the servants who are busy while their master has gone, and the one who's been busy and the master finds him doing something, that's evidence that he's part of the blessed group. All right, And then just one final passage. I think this one we would especially have to include because it's helpful to remember that this blessed group, they're not blessed because they're perfect. They're not blessed because they're good people. They're not blessed because they weren't sinners. They're blessed because they were the recipients of God's favor. And so David himself says, blessed is, exact same word, blessed is, "...the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit." So, a blessed person is the person who already has their sins forgiven. The one who has committed sins, but those sins aren't counted against them. Instead, they've been counted against Jesus' record. And Jesus' record has been counted as theirs. All right? So I know I've spent a little extra time on this, but I think it's an important concept to hold on to. I'm borrowing this, this diagram here from another writer, Jonathan Pennington, in his book, Sermon on the Mount. So these blessed statements are from others looking at us. And the parallel to these wouldn't be a curse, but they would be a woe. So remember, the blessing comes from top to bottom, and then the you are blessed statement comes from bottom to top. Well, the parallel to that would be God pronouncing a curse, and then other people looking at you and going, whoa, whoa, you are one of the cursed people. Okay, You might look like everything on the outside is going well for you. You might look like you're successful in this world, but by God's standards, I'm pronouncing a whoa. The opposite of congratulating you. This is actually a dangerous path that you are headed down. Okay? And this is what Jesus is going to do when we get to chapter 23. So remember I said last time that in Luke's gospel, his Sermon on the Mount comes in a little different arrangement, a different part of his gospel. And he has a beatitude, but he goes back and forth. Jesus will make the blessed statement, and then Jesus will make a woe. And then he'll make a blessed statement, and then he'll make a woe. Matthew has separated them. So he has he records Jesus, and because Jesus probably did this multiple times, he records it doing it on the Sermon on the Mount. And then when we get to chapter 23, he's going to have him doing it with the, the Pharisees. So just look at these parallels. These are the two groups of people. We, we all in this room and everyone we know would fall ultimately into one of these two groups. On the left, it's what Jesus says about these blessed people. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But to the scribes, the Pharisees, he's going to say, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. To the one group in chapter 5, Jesus will say, you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. You're not perfect yourself, but you deeply want to be. You hunger for yourself to be made right and for this world to be made right. But the other group, he just says, you appear to people as righteous. So all you're really worried about is what you look like. You don't have any inward desire to change. On the left, they're merciful. On the right, they neglected mercy. On the left, they were pure in heart. On the right, he says, inside, you're full of the bones of the dead of everything unclean. It's obviously a figure of speech, right? But it's a a powerful figure of speech, right? You're just whitewashed tombs. If you could see inside yourself, it would just be decaying corpses. On the left, he says, we're children of God, remember? Chapter 5, verse 9. But to them, he says, you're children of hell, which is just a euphemism for saying you're a child of the devil. It's the same thing. And in John's gospel, he'll come right out and say it, right? You're children of the devil. On the left, you're persecuted because of righteousness, and you're just like all the prophets who came before you, who also were persecuted. But on the right, you're not the persecuted person, but you're the persecutor. He'll say to the Pharisees, You descendants of those who murdered the prophets, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues, and you will pursue from town to town. And, and Jesus isn't just using hyperbole there, right? Because the Apostle Paul would fit into that category before he was converted, right? He would be a Pharisee who was a persecutor of God's prophets, right? So Jesus isn't just using a figure of speech. He's actually saying there's a group of people who are, who are hypocrites, who are only concerned about outward conformity, but they've never had an inward transformation, Those who are truly born again, we should see ourselves on the left. And that is what we, we strive for by God's grace. Those are the true characteristics of being a recipient of divine favor. So that's how he introduces the sermon. And then he moves into this little section in verses 13 through 16, where he's going to introduce the theme. So it's kind of like, I have the introduction... Now, I'm going to tell you what the sermon's about, my big idea or my theme statement. That's verses 13 through 16. And then, like a preacher usually does, after he's told you what his sermon is going to be about, then he starts unpacking it, explaining it. And then, at the very end, he's going to have a conclusion where he calls his listeners to actually make a decision. But in his theme, he does it in a very clever, very... uh, kind of attention-capturing way, right? Jesus really was a master teacher. We have to stop and remind ourselves of that, right? He, he he actually taught this way, and it's engaging, right? He used simple little illustrations. He used everyday examples. He caught people's attention, and he compares his disciples here to, to salt and light, okay? And the way I have it up there on the, the PowerPoint, I've already clued you in. I think that Both of them are making pretty much the same statement. So, salt and light are parallel. He's saying the same thing two different ways. All right. So, the sermon calls Jesus' disciples to live differently than the world around them. Jesus uses two illustrations to describe the folly of disciples, and I'll put that in quotation marks, who are not actually carrying out their purpose in the world. All right. So first of all, he compares us to salt. So what does he mean by that? Well, it seems that there were two main purposes of salt in the ancient world. All right. Today we think of salt as we need it on our fries, right? It's a it's a seasoning. Okay. Probably when we, a couple of weeks we go to Thanksgiving, there'll be a lot of salt consumption going on, right? Because it's that's the main reason. There was a little bit of that. I used to say there was none of that, but now I've actually seen other people make the argument, yeah, there's some of that that's going on. But that's probably not the main thing they would have thought of. The main purpose for salt that would have probably immediately come to mind was a preservative. It kept their meat from rotting, okay, because they don't have refrigeration. And then kind of related to that, they would use it in like purification rituals, So even in the Old Testament law, sometimes salt came into the sacrificial system. So preservative, purification, those seem to be the main two purposes. But it's not really clear, at least it's not clear to me when I read this passage, which purpose Jesus is referring to. But his main point is clear, I say there. If salt was no longer salty, that is, if it becomes something other than salt— it would not be able to carry out its distinctive role, whichever specific role is in mind. Unsalty salt is an oxymoron, right? Uh, Salt that isn't salty anymore, what is that? We actually have some evidence that they talked this way about salt, and they used it as an example of, of an impossibility. So we have a a dialogue between a rabbi and one of his students. If you ever read this old literature, it's always interesting. The rabbi will say something, a student will ask questions, they'll dialogue back and forth. It comes from the Middle Ages, but we have good reason to think that it traces its origins back to the time of Jesus. And uh, the student says to his teacher, if salt isn't salty, how can you make it salty again? You see how that's very similar to what Jesus says? And his rabbi's answer is, you use the afterbirth of a mule. Well, mules don't have children, right? So the the rabbi is being clever. He's saying it can't be done. And he's scolding his student for creating an impossible task, right? You can't make salt salty again, right? If it's not salt, it's not salt, right? And it's going to be the same metaphor again with light, right? a light that can't be seen is not light, right? There is no such thing as invisible light, okay? Now, in their day, they don't know about ultraviolet light, okay? So don't start thinking that in those terms. But they're saying light is seen by definition. It's visible. And you would never, it'd be foolish to think that you would light a lamp. Remember, a lamp in their day is just a little clay pot with oil and a wick. You wouldn't go through all that trouble of lighting something and then put a basket over it, right? That would snuff it out. It's meant to be seen. Salt is meant to be salty. Light is meant to be seen, okay? So, I have this quote there from from Turner. He says, Without good works, one simply is not a disciple of Jesus. A so-called disciple, without good works, is of no more value, value than tasteless salt or an invisible lamp. But an authentic disciple affects people, especially through the character traits of Matthew 5, 7 through 10, bringing glory to the heavenly Father. So I think that's the point. Whatever their purpose is, they have a distinctive role. If they they lose that purpose, they're good for nothing, and they're not really what they claim to be. So a so-called disciple of Jesus... Who's running around in this world not doing the things that Jesus told him to do? They're not really a disciple, right? They're as much of an oxymoron as unsalty salt or invisible light. Okay. Any any questions there about the the salt and light metaphor? Um, in your first paragraph. Yes, ma'am. Um, you say Jesus is talking about people who God graciously saves.
1: Mm-hmm. They have blessed state through their
0: changed light that's basically the salt in the light right the Yes light. yes yes so that so if I can tease out his metaphor a little bit that we have a distinctive taste and we have a distinctive role I kind of glossed over this sometimes I do that I know I just get ahead myself my notes but and it gets boring if I just read my notes right so every once in a while I got to come up from air. But it's interesting to me, at least, if you look at the paragraph where I talk about light, it says that, you know, I say there that Matthew's already quoted Isaiah 9, and he compared Jesus' ministry to a great light. Remember, he was born in Galilee, which was on the edge of the frontier, where the darkness was the darkest. So light seems to be a metaphor for revelation. So if you could tease out this analogy a little bit more, the reason why he might go to light is because we, like Jesus, do reveal the Father in this world. So we do have a very distinctive role to carry out. We're supposed to be different. And as I said last time, that cuts against how we're wired, most of us, right? There's always that one person that likes to stand out, but most of us like to blend in, right? Uh, especially you know, people like me that go and become you know, seminary professors. We tend to be the, the introverts of the world, right? We just want to blend in and not be noticed. And Jesus is saying you can't do that. Uh, We actually are supposed to stand out differently in this world, not to bring glory to ourselves. That's so important, right? He says it's so that you bring glory to your Father in heaven because he's the one that actually did it. So I think it's Calvin who says that at the final judgment, we'll have God's graces will be crowned in us. So the graces of God... That we get crowns for is really God just crowning what He Himself has accomplished. Question, Tony? So, um, for the position that the legislations of the Sermon on the Mount aren't for here and now, Mm -hmm. how would that work with the salt and light? If the salt and light is just the natural emanations of a Christian, it seemed like that would entail that everything said in the Sermon on the Mount would pertain to the Christian for the here and now as a legislation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I do take the position that it does apply to us here now, and I would point to this as good evidence for that. So, if I tried to argue the other side for them, I'm guessing they would say something like, well, you could still be salt and light in the millennial kingdom for example. You know, that might be how they would say it cuz there'll be unbelievers there. Or they might say um I don't know, It's about as far as I can go, because I'm guessing here what they would say. But, you know, something along those lines. But I just don't think it works. I think the, these statements, and especially his statements about persecution, really, for me, seal the deal that he's talking about this age that we, we currently live in. So it's between his first and second coming, where this world is dark, this world is sinful, but we as his disciples carry out a distinctive role in this. Now, some, some teachers actually, they'll, they'll pick up on the, the slowing down of decay, and they think that perhaps Jesus here is hinting at the fact that we can actually kind of preserve society to some degree. So there is a sense where the, if the gospel permeates a nation or if an area, that that does have a common grace benefit to that country and area. Right? We, we in this country, we benefit from the fact that we had lots of Christian worldview in our background. Right, uh, It would be different if we were born in other places of this world. Uh, so there, there might be some of that, um, but it's hard. It's hard to know like, how far you, you take someone's metaphor and, and tease it out. Okay, Any other questions? Those are both good questions. All right, I'll go back to reading for just a little bit then, all right? So where are we at? All right, we're going to go to uh, page 29.2 at the top. So there's this very important paragraph. Let me just read a little bit for you. This is chapter 5, verse 17. So I'll start reading verse 17. Jesus says, "...do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets." So I'm going to suggest there that law and the prophets just means the Old Testament. It's a way of referring to the whole Testament. So he's saying, don't think that I came to get rid of them. He says, I have not come to abolish them or to get rid of them, but to fulfill them. And there I think fulfill should have its normal sense of fulfill as in prophecy. So I think that's how we should take it. So he's not saying I came to fulfill the Mosaic law in the sense of like to keep it. I don't think he means I came to give the real meaning of the law. That's another second option. Fulfill, as it already has in Matthew, like when it said that you know, the, the virgin was going to conceive and give birth to a son and this was fulfilled when Jesus was born to Mary. Fulfill usually, unless you have a really good indication that it's having an unusual meaning, It just means the Old Testament predicted something, and now it's coming true. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. And so that's what Jesus is saying. I didn't come to abolish or to set aside the Old Testament. I actually came to do everything that said was going to be done. I came to fulfill it. For, so verse 18, he's giving you the reason why he can so strongly say that. For, truly I tell you. So that's just Jesus' way of saying, listen up. I'm about ready to tell you something very important. So like in our, in our old uh, King James, like, it was, you know, "Verily I say unto you or something like that. It's, a, it's an attention getter. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So you've got fulfill, accomplish. I think he's talking about prophecy. So will heaven and earth disappear someday? Yes. Not as in like they cease to exist, but they'll become new. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And he's saying until that takes place, everything that the law said was going to happen, everything that the prophets said that was going to happen, everything that the Old Testament said that was going to happen, will be happening. It will until all of it is accomplished. Therefore, he says in verse 19, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called, called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I take a little minority position here. I think most people think the commands that he's referring to are the Old Testament commands. But I think he's pointing forward to what I'm about to say. So as I say there on the slide, there's a bunch of questions that ask, and we could get into the weeds here, and it would take a while but I think these commands he's pointing forward to the rest of his sermon. And then when he closes, it's going to be the person who hears his words and builds his house upon them. So I think he's talking about his own, his own teaching. So basically, if I can paraphrase what our Lord just said there, he's saying, hey, my coming, even though it doesn't look like what you're expecting, it doesn't mean that the Old Testament isn't going to come true. Actually, everything that the Old Testament predicted will come true. And it will be finally finished when the new heavens and the new earth take place. So, because I really am the one who's going to fulfill all this, you need to listen carefully to about what I'm about to tell you. You need to obey these commands. If you don't obey them, you'll be considered the least in my kingdom. If you obey them and teach other people to, to obey them, you'll be considered great. Okay, that's the Ryan Meyer paraphrase of what that passage has just told us there. Okay? So, uh, if I can just quickly go through those points, I think the law and the prophets in verse 17, based on how it's used other places in the New Testament, refers to the whole Old Testament. And then in verse 18, he just says law, but because he's already said law and prophets, I think law is just shorthand for, again, the whole Old Testament. And that's a common way that law is used, okay? Abolish there just means to annul or make invalid or get rid of. And fulfill means the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. That's how he used those exact same combination of words back in chapter 1, Okay, when he was talking about the virgin birth. And when he says these commands, I think we should think of the commands that Jesus is about to give in the rest of the, of the sermon. Okay? Why is that important? Why do I spend time on that? Well, first, I just I want to, to the degree that I can, get it right, right, and understand what Jesus is saying. But also, I think as he gets into this next section, so he's going to start here in chapter five, verses twenty-one through forty-seven, making these antithesis statements. So these parallel, contrasting statements. He's going to say, "You have heard, but I say to you." And I think sometimes we we hear that and we think that Jesus is maybe correcting the Old Testament, which that doesn't seem right, or he's giving the deeper meaning of the Old Testament, or he's giving new teaching, but I think what he's actually doing is the, because the Old Testament, I think, is still binding upon Jesus and his hearers. They're still living under the Mosaic economy, and I think what he's actually saying is that you've heard teaching based on the Old Testament that was deficient, okay? So he's not actually correcting the Old Testament himself, itself. He's correcting how the Old Testament has been applied and taught by the religious leaders of their day. And now he, as as the Lord, as the one who actually gave that revelation to Moses, he's here to correct how it's been used, okay? So in a sense, he is pointing to deeper truths, sometimes things that weren't on the surface, but as you go through those, so for example, let's just take one of them. He's going to say, you know, it's not enough just to, to not commit adultery, but you also can't look at a, another person who's not your spouse and, and covet them or lust after them. Now, if you had explained that to Elijah or David, they would have agreed with that. They wouldn't have said, oh, you know, I've never thought of that before, or that's not what the law teaches. I think, if I'm right, they would have agreed they would have said, yes, that is what the law always has intended, right? So Jesus isn't expanding the law. He's not redefining the law. He's explaining to these people what the law always pointed to. And what he's pushing back, I think, is their, their misuse of it or their misapplication. Okay? So uh, let's go to the bottom there of page 29, all right? That very last paragraph will pick up there where it says as we go, so as we go through these, we must remember that both Jesus and his original audience were still living under the Mosaic Law. That's why it's going to talk about, you know, offering sacrifices at the temple. So if we have to so we have to interpret the meaning of his teaching based on how they would have understood it, but also draw out a significance that would carry over to us today, all right? So we can't very literally in a mechanical fashion try to apply what jesus said because you and i are probably never going to find ourselves getting ready to offer a sacrifice or a gift at an altar and remember that our brother has something against us right but there could be an underlying principle right that would carry over what would be the underlying principle that would carry over today you're getting ready to offer a gift on the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, so you leave your gift there, and you go make it right. Could it. Like communion. it could be communion, yeah. yeah. Any any general worship? Right. So basically, he's saying you making things right with your brother, who you've offended, is far more important than you doing any kind of outward act of worship or, or ritual and devotion to God, because what God really cares about is, is your underlying heart issue. Were you going to say something, Tony? Uh, of the passage in that says that we have a like, to mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, much ago, right? <laughs> yeah, you did. And we do this all the time with Old Testament passages, right? We even sometimes do this with New Testament passages. So when Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss, right? We don't run around, at least, uh, at least the inner city we don't. I don't know what you guys do here. But we don't run around and kiss each other, right? So we know, that, hey, he means something in his historical context, and that doesn't carry over to our day because we live in a different world 2,000 years apart. But there's a principle that carries over, right? And so we're used to doing that with other biblical texts. We've, we've gotten pretty nimble at it, Um, I think we should be doing the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. Not trying to interpret it or apply it in a very mechanical, one-for-one fashion, but looking at the underlying heart issue that Jesus was pointing to all along. These are some other interpretive principles. So these are a footnote on the bottom of page 29, but I'll also put them up here on the screen. I borrowed these from Martin lloyd Jones's little two-volume book. It's not really a little book. It's a big two-volume book going through the Sermon on the Mount. How to interpret the sermon. I found these helpful. So, number one, it's not a new law, okay? So I tried to emphasize this. This isn't something new that Jesus is teaching. But instead, it emphasizes the spirit of the Mosaic Law. All right. You might ask yourself, well, well then why didn't wasn't the Mosaic Law just more direct to begin with? You have to remember, though, the Mosaic Law was given to primarily unbelievers. It was a a constitution for a a country, a group of people who, for the most part, were not born again, right? It was only a few believers within the community that would have been able to look at the law and see its underlying truth, right? But Jesus now can authoritatively draw that out. So we need to understand Jesus' teaching within the historical context of his original hearers. Number two, therefore, it was never intended to be applied mechanically. So if a soldier comes up to you and asks you to carry his stuff for a mile, you're supposed to go with him, what, two miles. But how often is that going to happen to us? Maybe never, right? It's never happened to me. It probably will never happen to you. And even there, Jesus isn't saying, like, well, at two miles, stop. Like, you know, have your pedometer out and just make sure that that you don't go another inch, right? No, we understand that that's not how that verse is supposed to be interpreted. So it's not supposed to be mechanical. So what would be the, the underlying principle that would carry over for today, right? Maybe something like, if oppressive governments making you do things you don't want to do, you should just be such a cheerful citizen, right? That they can hold nothing against you, right? You'll go above and beyond what's asked of you. You could still be a David or a Joseph, even if you have tyrants ruling over you, right? The kind of citizen that they like to be around, right? Uh, It's not just talking about if a soldier asks you to go one mile, okay? So never intended to be applied mechanically. Three, if our teaching appears to lead to a ridiculous position, it is a wrong interpretation. I like that one. That's probably my favorite one. We have to allow for some hyperbole, all right? So look at verses 29 and 30. So, Jesus says there, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown to hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, right? He's not actually talking about amputation. There's one Bible study that we like to go through at Inner City says the heart or the knife would never go deep enough, right, to remove sin. If it was really just about cutting body parts off, we never would able to accomplish it, right? Because it's actually, it's actually a heart problem. Uh, number four there, if our interpretation makes the teaching impossible to obey, it also is wrong, okay? I think Jesus actually gave this to us so that we would do it. Again, as I'll, I'll say, bef- I said it before and I'll say it again, he sets the bar very high, just like a father does to his children, and then he allows for, for grace, and he allows for repentance, but he still sets the bar high, right? I never said to my kids, you can fight just twice a day, or three times a day, and that's okay, right? No, I just said, you can't fight. There will be no fighting in this house, right? That is the standard, and it's the standard that he holds us to, but he doesn't hold up an impossible standard to his children. This is actually something he expects us to obey. And finally, if our interpretation contradicts the plain teaching of other passages of Scripture, it must be wrong. So think back to last week, you know, my example of the the Mennonite interpretation that leads to pacifism, right? You always have to turn the other cheek. Well, their interpretation, I would suggest, contradicts Jesus when he tells his disciples, go get a sword, right? Defend yourself. So you always have to compare Scripture with Scripture. And if you think you're sure about what the sermon means, but it contradicts the clear teaching of another passage— then the problem isn't with the passage, the problem is with us, right? We have to go back and reevaluate what we thought the passage meant in the first place. So that
1: would be kind of the same way that like, uh, a lot of people say that the Sabbath is still Saturday because you said that didn't come to abolish long. Right? right. So it will be the same thing, another interpretation. Right?
0: Yeah, and that is, you know, I know that slide I threw up there with my four big points. That might seem kind of obscure. Why am I spending time on that? But some people will point to that passage where he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. And then they would say, well, that means that the law of Moses is still in effect. Uh, We still should be following the law of Moses. And I don't think that's Jesus' point. I think Jesus is speaking specifically about the setting aside of prophecy. Here we got to put on our imagination a little bit, our imagination caps, and put ourselves in the shoe of his original readers What they found strange about Jesus is that he's not immediately doing all of the things that they expected him to do. And I don't think the answer then is to say he's not the kind of messiah they expected. That almost has become a cliche in the Christian church. Well, Jesus wasn't that type of messiah. He was a different type of messiah. I think a better way to say that he just hasn't done everything yet. He is exactly that kind of messiah. He will come on a white horse with a sword. He r- will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will come from Basra with his garments sprinkled with blood. All those passages will come true. They just haven't come true yet. And I think that's a healthy way. And so that, I think that's why that, in the interpretation of that verse is, is so important. All right. Any other questions there about those, those principles here on the slide? Yes, sir. Wes?
1: that uh, doesn't that refer to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ till all be fulfilled? Because the, the, the thing is is because the Old Testament law, the Mos- Old Testament mosaic law was abolished. I mean, circumcision, you know, the passage that says, you know, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing but obedience. Well, you know, to the Hebrews, you know, that you know, circumcision was important. I mean, in, at least in the Old Testament. And I know we're in the new dispensation, and that started on the day of Pentecost. I understand that, but, but the, the thing is, is uh, you know, exactly understanding yeah. these passages. And you said something about this was an Old Testament Mosaic law he was talking about, but his
0: own law? When he says these commandments, so when you look at verse 19, he says, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do also, I think he's pointing forward to his own commandments that he's getting ready to give. Okay. But also, you're, you're asking, well, how do we know that this, till all things take place, how do we know that's a future event? And I think we know that because he puts it parallel with the passing away of new heavens and new earth. So he says, when heaven and earth passes away, these things will be accomplished. So whenever heaven and earth passes away, these things will be accomplished. Or if you have a Bible and you just stick your finger, you go to chapter 24, and you look at uh, verses 34 through 36. So remember, we're, we're looking at the first sermon in Matthew. Now I'm skipping ahead to the last sermon in Matthew. The two of them are parallel. We have a sermon on the Mount, and then we have a sermon on the Mount of Olives, Sermon on the Mount is who gets into the kingdom, what does a true repenter look like. The Sermon on the Mount of Olives is when does the kingdom come, what's, what are the signs, what are the timing. So the two are, are set up by Matthew to be parallel, and he uses almost the exact same phrase. So if you look at verse 34, he says in ch- chapter 24, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. There's that same phrase there. So all these things take place. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So I think, again, he's putting the two parallel. So all of these things taking place, all of these things being accomplished, when will that happen? I'm thinking Jesus is putting that parallel with the passing away of this heaven and earth, when the new heaven and the new earth comes. And so he's, he's saying, just hold on, if I can paraphrase him, hold on, I'm going to do everything that the Old Testament predicted, I'm doing some of it now, and I'm going to do a bunch more later, but when that new heaven and new earth comes at the end of the age, all of it will have taken place, all of it will be accomplished. So he's.
1: So so the key then is not what I was saying—the death, burial, and resurrection—accomplishing it, but 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 understanding that what he's talking about is his law. I mean, not the Old Testament
0: Mosaic law. Yeah, yeah. I don't even think he's really talking about laws and like legal stuff. I don't think his statement has anything to do with the Old Testament law as law. He's just using law and prophets as a way of meaning the Old Testament. And he's talking about Old Testament prophecy.
1: Well, when he commanded, you know, because the Great
0: Commission, and, and teach them yeah. everything that I have commanded. Sure, but that wouldn't be Old Testament teaching, right? That'd be his so, teaching. Yeah, 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 teaching. exactly. Yeah, okay. yep, yep. All right, so let's go to page thirty. So what I tried to do, you know, because we don't have time to just you know verse by verse go through the whole sermon. And I'm assuming that you're already pretty familiar with it. But I just tried to, in a a sentence or two, just kind of summarize Jesus' teaching here in these antithesis statements. So the first one there, murder and hatred. So the Old Testament prohibited murder, but it also intended to prohibit hatred, right? Because both actions are attacks on God's image bearers. So again, I don't think if David or Elijah were here, they would push back. They would say, yes, hating someone is also wrong. All right? And so no matter what was being taught by the religious leaders in Jesus' day, you know, just if you avoid murder, you're okay, and Jesus would say no. Because this is a, an image bearer that we're dealing with, a fellow image bearer. To hate him, or to even think murderous thoughts in your heart, is equally as wrong. The next one there, adultery and lust. The Old Testament prohibited adultery, but I think it also intended to prohibit lust or, or coveting. Okay? The, the, the language that Jesus uses there for lust is very similar to how the Greek translation of the Old Testament translated the, the commandment about thou shall not covet. Because right? lust, really, at its underlying root is you looking at something that's not yours and wanting it, all right? It's you taking an affection or a a desire that's good and natural, but now you're attaching it to the wrong object, all right? Somebody else's spouse in this case. But that would apply to other things, right? Because remember the commandment for coveting, it was your neighbor's donkey, right? So in our day, it would be his car or his house or anything that he has that God hasn't given you and you want it, right? That's also, that's also sin. That shouldn't mark us as Jesus' disciples. All right, The one on divorce, those with a higher righteousness should not be looking for legal reasons to get out of their marriages. So we know in Jesus' day there were many arguments going on among the rabbis over what are the good grounds for divorce. Some of them were really strict, adultery only. Some of them were really loose, right? If she burns the bread or if she doesn't look pretty anymore, you can divorce her, right? There were both extremes in Jesus' day and probably everything in the middle. And Jesus' answer basically is if you're looking for legal reasons, you've already missed the point, right? Not that there might be some good reasons, but if you're looking for them, if you've just given up on your marriage, if it means that little to you, You've forgotten the intention of marriage all along. So I, st- I tried to summarize that there as our marriages should be preserved whenever possible, that's the key word, even at great sacrifice, all right? The oath one I think is a little harder for us because, um, and this one I think has been uh, uh, misinterpreted. So I was watching just a little snippet of the, the court case that was going on today, right? The sentencing of the, the Parkland murder, And I noticed there in Florida, uh, when the judge would ask people to to swear, she would say you can either swear or affirm. Did anybody else notice that? And that's because there's some people, they have a conscientious objection to swearing, right? They won't swear oaths in courtrooms, and so they, they give that language of affirm, so they can have another option. That's based on some people's understanding of what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus like the Old Testament, has no problem with oaths, okay? Oaths were binding agreements where you said you were going to do something. Jesus' issue was trying to find clever ways out of promises. Once you enter a promise, once you give somebody your word that you're going to do something, we as his disciples, we can't be thinking of ways to get out of it, right? We have to keep our words. And this was Old Testament teaching as well. So Leviticus 19.12, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So swearing falsely means I made a promise in God's name that I didn't intend to keep. Okay, That's what that law is talking about. That's probably even what the, the commandment about not taking the Lord's name in vain. It pro- I mean, it, it is also wrong, I think, to use his name flippantly or as a, a derogatory curse. But primarily what that's talking about is taking his name and saying, in God's name, I'm going to do something. Or like putting my hand on a Bible. You're appealing to his authority to make it look like you intend to keep your word, but all along you're going to be looking for a way to get out of it. God's saying, you can't do that with my name, right? I will hold you accountable if you actually use me in that way. And then in Numbers 30 verse 2, he says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, He must not break his word, but must do everything he said. So notice the law didn't say, don't make vows altogether. It actually assumed that you would make vows, that you would make oaths, okay? It just is that if you do that, you have to keep them, okay? You know, we live in a culture today where you can sign, right, and say, I'm going to pay back all this money, but then immediately start looking for loopholes so that you can get out from paying it, right, or never intend to pay it, right? But that shouldn't characterize us as disciples of Jesus. That should be one thing that's different about us in this world. that If we tell people we're going to do something, we do it, right? And we're not looking for clever loopholes to get around it. So one more passage. This would be from Ecclesiastes 4 or 5, verses 4 through 6. When you make a vow to God. So notice, it's when you make it. So it's assuming that this will take place. Do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. All right. So what was the intention, I think, of Jesus' statement? Those with a higher righteousness, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, must not cleverly use oaths to get out of promises. All right. I think we can do the same thing with with what he says about retaliation. I think we can go back into the the Old Testament. We can see that there were Old Testament passage passages that all along were teaching the same types of things that Jesus is teaching. Vengeance is God's. We ourselves are not supposed to retaliate. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul's going to quote that. So I think the underlying principle there is that those with a higher righteousness must not retaliate or gain personal revenge even when genuinely wronged, all right? This one here, I tried to expand a little further. If you look at page 30, I tried to think through some different ways that we could apply this today. And I also, in my applications, I tried to think of other passages of Scripture that we wouldn't want to contradict, all right? So number one, we're supposed to be willing to endure insults without personal retaliation. So remember, this is an attack on you. So if it doesn't mean that if somebody else was being attacked, you couldn't protect them. If it was your child, your spouse, your, your fellow church member, and they were being attacked, you could defend them, Right? because that is an image bearer that's being attacked, and and it's wrong, and you have a responsibility to defend them. But if you personally are being attacked, and it's not going to cause you personal injury, I think you do have the choice, and in many cases, it would be honoring to God to just endure the insults, right? To follow the example of our Lord, who was able to stand there at his trial and not say anything back. In verse 40, he talks about people who have a lawsuit against them. So look at verse 40. He says, um, and if, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. That one's hard for us because we live in a day of frivolous lawsuits, right? We could be sued for all kinds of different things. Suing back then, as far as we know, was very difficult. And no one went through the process unless they had a legitimate gripe, a legitimate claim. So if you were being sued, I think Jesus' statement assumes that you actually have done something wrong. And the tendency would be, well, if someone took me to court because I owed them money or or there was something that I had to do, I'm just going to pay what I'm owed or what I owe them and we'll just get this cleared up quickly. And this is kind of parallel to his next statement that he's going to make in verse 41 about going the extra mile. So it's not just, hey, I go to court. I, I wrong somebody, I owe them money, you should be able to go above and beyond, right? The heart of a disciple of Jesus would be not just to pay what you owed, but to give over your shirt and your coat as well. So when we've wronged someone and they're suing us, we should go beyond what the law requires to make things right. He's not literally talking about just shirts and coats, right? There's an underlying principle, go above and beyond to do whatever's possible to make things right, all right? We already talked about the next one. When oppressive governments force us to work, we should respond with compassion and a humble desire to serve. I think that would have characterized Daniel and his three friends, right? They, they didn't just automatically show up at the highest levels of Nebuchadnezzar's court, right? He saw that they were, they were servants and had a desire to, to work hard and go above and beyond even after everything that had happened to them and their families and their country, right? And that should also characterize us as the blessed ones. And then finally, our decisions about helping others should not be based on who we like or don't like. So we talked about this one last time, people begging, right? People begging in the first century, they didn't do it as a profession. You know, they, didn't do them, they didn't do it because some guy in a van just dropped him off in a corner and is gonna take a cut. They did it because they were going to die if they did it. Okay? You, you begged in the first century to avoid death. And so in those types of situations where you know that someone has a genuine need, you should be willing to give, and who they are and whether or not they can repay you doesn't factor into the equation. So Jesus says anyone who asks you, and I think that's an implied anyone with a need who asks you, you, you should give it to him. Okay, Any... Any thoughts there about how we can interpret or apply some of these difficult statements in the sermon? The so vow goes back to marriage, too. Because when you get married, you take a vow. Right. Mm-hmm. So you'd be breaking like two commandments. Yeah, for better or worse, right? M- many of us said that, so yeah. So Jesus does seem to allow for there's some situations where you're, you're you can you want to save the marriage and you can't, so there there is that exception, but if we're go in looking for exceptions, we've kind of missed the point, haven't we? Yeah. All right. Well, I got to draw this to close. So I just wanted to show you here how Jesus closes this. He talks about some daily applications. He calls us to make a choice, right? And I, I think I already introduced this when we talked about it last week, but he has two gates leading to two different roads, two trees with two different fruit, two foundations with two different outcomes in the storm. It's just three ways of saying the same thing, right? There's going to be people out there that claim to be his followers, but don't actually produce his, his fruit, all right? i got a longer statement here from Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I'll just end with the, the shorter one. This one's been encouraging to me. This is from Leon Morris's commentary on, on uh, Matthew. He says, The sermon removes all complacency. The follower of Christ cannot say, I have done all I should. I am the complete servant of God. No matter how far we have gone along the Christian road, the sermon tells us that there is more ahead of us. All right. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to go through it. And if you have questions, something we didn't cover, feel free to bring it up next week. Uh, but Lord willing, we'll be back and we'll we'll dive into chapter eight.